Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Riley Snyder and assistant editor Michelle Rendells break down the State of the State address from Governor Steve Sisolak. They'll tell us what the governor's plans are heading into this year's legislative session amid an ongoing pandemic and economic crisis. Afterwards, we'll meet two more new freshman legislators, Assemblywoman Venetia Considine and Assemblywoman Chandra Summers-Armstrong. We will have some more freshman interviews for you next week, and we'll have 12 more to introduce to you over the next few weeks. At the end of the show, Megan Messerly joins us to give us our weekly update on the state of the pandemic in Nevada. listen to this, we're just a little more than a week away from the start of Nevada's 81st legislative session in Carson City. And for the first time, we now have an idea of precisely what some of the policy contours of that session will look like. That's for two reasons. First, we finally got a look Monday at Governor Steve Sisolak's proposed $8.68 billion budget for the next two-year cycle. I will be honest, putting together a budget for the next two years is hard enough in the good times, and even more difficult during a state of emergency. And second, Sisolak spoke to Nevadans directly in his second-ever State of the State address, a 30-minute pre-recorded speech that was delivered on Tuesday. Now, our very own Riley Snyder and Michelle Rendells, who covered the legislature for us, are here to break it all down. So, the governor covered a lot of ground in his address, especially considering the sheer number of crises that hit over the course of the last year. But I want to start first with the thing that will likely consume the bulk of the session, and that's the budget. There was a lot of info to take out of Sisolak's budget announcement and all of the info he gave as part of his speech. But what are the top line takeaways? One of the biggest things is that um, the pandemic has uh, really shaken kind of the healthcare system up. Um, instead of having employer-sponsored health care, a lot of people are unemployed and they're heading to the Medicaid system. Uh, there's 120,000 more people on Medicaid uh, than we expected there would be, which is almost 20%. Uh, so it's just a huge number. The state has to pay part of that uh, while the federal government kicks in the lion's share. Um, you know, we expanded Medicaid way back in uh, the Obamacare uh, option a couple of years back, uh, which allows uh, more people to be eligible for it. And a lot of people are taking advantage of it. But the trade-off there is that uh, sucks up a lot of the money. Uh, education is actually going to be funded at a level that's about $50 million lower than it was in the current budget cycle. Uh, and what stands out to me there is that we're on this trans- transition to a new funding formula for education. Um, but the whole discussion last session was we don't want to just divvy up the same pie different ways. We want to grow the pie and we want to have more money to give um, significantly more money, you know, thousands more per pupil to, to give out. Um, and that is just not going to happen. Education funding is going down. So uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they can do that process. And I don't think a lot of people are going to be terribly happy with Uh, the outcome. Mm. So last year in 2020, we saw some pretty wide ranging cuts that were made on an emergency basis as part of a special session last summer. Those cuts were, I think, larger than a lot of people had anticipated, but 
perhaps proportional considering the way that the Las Vegas Strip and the rest of the state shut down for a good portion of last year. Now, considering the size of those cuts, how do the cuts expected for this next two-year cycle compare? Kind of the incredible thing is that the budget that was proposed by the governor in his state of the state address is only 2% less than the budget that was uh, proposed during his last state of the state, which was two years ago. So like, you know, obviously the economy has shrunk more than 2%. So like, if you had told me a couple of months ago, we were going to have essentially the same budget with a 2% range, I wouldn't have believed you because, you know, tax revenues are doing so poorly. The strip has been closed. People aren't coming. International visitors aren't coming. The fact is the state's financial situation has improved slightly in the past few months. The Economic Forum's December revenue projection for the next biennium is $8.5 billion, which is $418 million more than was projected in June of 2020. So the, uh, the current budget is at $8.68 billion, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, it's based off the Economic Forum's forecast, which was made in December. There was a lot of optimism at that time about the COVID vaccine, getting things back to normal on a more rapid pace. Um, that can all change. Um, it's all sort of still up in the air. Um, the economic forum will meet again in May to set a final tax revenue projection that the legislature and governor have to work off of. So that could change quite a bit. Um, in his speech, the governor was very adamant about like the fluid, the fluidity of the budget situation. But I think it's a combination of that and expected federal dollars coming in to sort of boost up the, the state's economy. So we have the late December stimulus deal that President Trump signed into law. And now we have a potential new uh, stimulus deal that will have direct aid to state and local governments, which could also sort of mess with the budget process in the sense that I don't know when that's going to pass. And Nevada's legislature runs for 120 days. So we have a baked in deadline, whereas Congress could wait till April or May, and the later it gets, the more complicated it gets for the budget situation. So there are a, a, definitely a lot of factors that are affecting the budget timeline that are, haven't been there before in the past. But I think heading into it, everyone was a little surprised to see, you know, there weren't going to be these massive cuts. There was a 6% cut to Medicaid rates. That was very controversial past over the summer. That'll be restored. State worker furloughs are being restored. So they're undoing a lot of like the hard cuts they had to do this summer. Hmm. So we've danced around it a little bit, but obviously the biggest thing that's impacted these budget discussions has been the pandemic, and the pandemic is not over. What did the governor have to say about the state's pandemic response? And did he intimate what is the state going to do going forward now that we're in a new year, we have vaccines, and how is the state going to respond while those vaccines are rolled out? Maybe Riley can get a little more into the details, but I will say that immediately after the state of the state, the governor really emphasized how the speed of this vaccine is going to affect uh, the revenues. Just exactly what Riley said, if, if we don't meet these targets for getting enough people vaccinated, if this doesn't produce the tourism rebound that we hope it would, that's going to cause this chaos at the end of the session. When usually the end of the session is, oh, we found, you know, $200 million extra money and we can add to this program and that program. Um, so he said the vaccine is just what he's thinking about constantly uh, because it, it affects everything. Nothing can really proceed forward as normal until, um, until the vaccine helps us get back to a normal. But Riley may have a little more to say about the um, specific health measures. Yeah, so I don't think there was anything in the speech that was necessarily new. Like there's no um, 
additional restrictions or shutdowns or anything like that that was announced. So it was sort of a status quo in terms of that. The other interesting thing now is with Biden in the White House, the administration's approach to the pandemic, and I think Governor Sisolak's approach to the pandemic will be a little bit more aligned in terms of the, the mask wearing and all that sort of stuff. So our colleague Megan Messerly could probably talk all day about this kind of stuff, but um, I think that's going to be sort of um, more aligned approaches between the state and the federal. And But there was nothing in the state of the state that had to deal with the, the pandemic response. Part of that too is because almost everything the state has done to respond to the pandemic has been funded through federal dollars, either through the CARES Act or through all these various um, federal relief deals. So there's not a lot of like things the state can do um, in terms of like dollars they can spend themselves. They can oversee and manage. There was a COVID oversight panel put together by the legislature that met all of one time last year, um, but they don't have like the direct control they do over, say, the education budget or things that are more in, in their control. The economic impact of the pandemic has been brutal for a lot of people. Nevada was not in a position to handle a pandemic particularly well because of its reliance on hospitality. And we've seen that, like you mentioned, whether it's the, the need for people to rely on uh, rental assistance or, or unemployment. All of these programs have really propped up Nevada's economy. And that assistance will end at some point. So did the governor outline exactly how he wants to reboot the Nevada economy once we have a better sense of when the pandemic will end or even how it will end? I think there was a lot in the speech about economic development, um, which you tend to hear more of on uh, in times when the state is in a recession. It's not enough to just aim for a full reopening of our current economy. We must look forward to the kind of economy that will let our state prosper in the future and create opportunity for all Nevadans. There was a significant focus on retraining the workforce and realigning the workforce with uh, where the areas of growth are. Um, you know, we are so dependent on hospitality. One in three Nevada jobs is somehow tied to tourism. And when tourism is down nearly 60%, um, we have predictable uh, impacts there. You know the truth. We're dependent on hospitality for a big part of our economy. And when travel stops, hotel rooms go empty, when showrooms close and our convention business and tourism shuts down, it hits our state harder than any state in the nation. So, you know, there was a focus on, on leaning more in the community colleges. Um, you know, I've been working on some reporting related to the efforts to retrain um, the workforce and kind of the creative uh, ways they're trying to really uh, ramp up retraining and creating customized programs and, and pushing people towards them. Um, and that was in addition to a variety of other economic development initiatives I'm sure Riley can talk more about with uh, blockchain and renewable energy. Yeah, I'm curious, Riley. The The energy was a huge part of the speech, as well as the governor mentioned blockchain city. Can you explain a little bit about that? Um, I wish I could, but <laughs> blockchain city is a little difficult to explain. So um, the governor uh, laid out, as governors normally do in the state of the state, uh, like their legislative agenda um, in his state of the state address. The first one he mentioned was clean energy economy. He mentioned energy storage, lithium mining, um, things of that nature. I think transmission was also a big uh, part of that. So there's a lot of details and like a lot of stuff will go into that. That's a big infrastructure project that will cost like a lot of money. Um, NV Energy did call for a big uh, transmission upgrade plan over the summer. So I'm curious to see if this is like an expanded version of that or if this is something totally different. Um, 
but there's a lot to, to kind of dig into there. The other one was this uh, innovation zones idea, and there weren't a lot of details about what an innovation zone is other than it's a zone where innovation happens. So curious to see what happens with that. He did mention uh, Blockchain LLC by name. That's the blockchain technology company that's based um, in Northern Nevada. They bought 68,000 acres at the Tahoe Reno Industrial Center, which is where the Tesla Gigafactory and a bunch of other stuff is. They've had these plans for a blockchain smart city thing since 2018. I guess it's still on track to be built next year, but they said there might be more information coming out of that. So very curious to see sort of where that leads or where that goes and what other applications might be um, useful in terms of this idea, because the governor said there wouldn't be any tax abatements or incentives involved in that. So I'm, you know, again, very curious. A lot of these details will be borne out in the legislative process when bills come out and you get to hear the testimony, but those are sort of like two of the big priority areas that he was like big on um, stressing during his address. And another thing that he got into is infrastructure. Um, and, and I think, you know, the common knowledge is that when you have these projects, you're creating a lot of these construction jobs and that's, uh, you know, a little stimulus to the economy right there. So um, he did say he wanted to encourage um, any delayed projects to, to go forward uh, just to help kind of create those jobs when they're needed the most. Um, you know, he restored money for the UNLV Medical School, which I think is another, you know, another one of those things that it's hard to front that money, but um, it does create those more immediate construction jobs and that project is kind of shovel ready. So... So finally, what I want to ask about is the Republican response. So uh, it is traditional for the minority party to provide their own counterprogramming to these speeches. But the Republican Party in Nevada finds itself in a strange position. That's both in a Nevada context, because they are the minority party in all three branches of government, but also because the Republican Party nationally is in a strange position with a few intraparty splits, especially considering both the insurrection in the Capitol on January 6th and the way that President Trump left the White House in a rather acrimonious fashion. Considering all this, what did we hear from the party's leader? And specifically, I'm talking about uh, Assembly Minority Leader Robin Titus, who delivered that message this week? Yeah, I think um, Robin Titus had a variety of uh, points she wanted to make. You know, Republicans have been critical of uh, a lot of the COVID-related business restrictions. You know, those have loosened over the months, and um, we're now at capacity limits are probably the biggest uh, deterrent for economic growth right now, um, you know, in the 25% capacity limits that are in place in a lot of places. Um, so she spoke out a lot about that. We've seen um, Republicans make the case for trying to curb the governor's emergency powers under which he's making these types of restrictions. Um, we also saw um, a call for election reform, and, and we've seen a lot of bills uh, being requested that would do things like voter ID or otherwise um, kind of scale back what Democratic-controlled legisla legislatures um, this summer and before have implemented. Uh, I think it still remains to be seen how Republicans, what tone they take now that we're out of the phase of questioning whether Biden will become president um, or kind of having hope that he wouldn't. Um, and now it kind of setting in that he's in office. So I think we have yet to hear much from Republicans on that point in the last few days but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. 
how that affects a lot of election bills and how, especially, I think a lot of the polarization that has come about because Republicans have so uh, stridently questioned the integrity of the election, how that's going to play out with their Democratic colleagues. Yeah, and to piggyback off that point, like you're right, Jacob, but they're like, it's a big tent party um, in the in the legislature, you have one lawmaker, Annie Black, who was um, just elected this November for the first time, who was at the the rally, turned right at the Capitol, said she never went in the building, um, but was physically there. And then on the other end, you have someone like Senator Ben Kika for a Republican who appeared in the governor's state of the state address um, and said, like, we're going to disagree, but we need to like come together as one Nevada. So I think there's definitely a tension there. It's going to be interesting to see how that sort of plays out and those, those dynamics um, play out, certainly. I think there are some positive signs. Um, one thing was a joint statement that came out after that Capitol riot where, where both Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson, a Democrat, and Robin Titus, a Republican, signed on and said, you know, if someone's involved in criminal activities, we, we you know, strongly condemn that. Um, and then, you know, Robin Titus has said uh, in, in a podcast with NPRI that you know, she's interested in getting things done and not just making bills that make a statement to the base, um, but never see the light of day in a Democrat-controlled legislature. So I do think that there is a pragmatism going on, um, at least among the leadership. So um, we'll, we'll see how that uh, plays out in the real world. Well, I think there will be no shortage of things to watch as the legislative session kicks off at the beginning of next month. Riley Snyder, Michelle Rindels, you two cover the legislature for the Nevada Independent. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jacob. If you want to know more about the governor's address, you can find an annotated copy of the State of the State speech on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, along with our complete coverage of the upcoming legislative session. We are back for the second installment of Freshman Orientation, where we get to meet new members of the Nevada Legislature. And this week, we have a jingle. The first freshman we're going to meet this week is Chandra Summers Armstrong, a Democrat who represents Assembly District 6 in North Las Vegas. She takes over a seat that was previously held by William McCurdy, who recently won a seat as Clark County Commissioner. Well, I grew up in Northern California in the Bay Area. My parents were young parents. We lived in Oakland in the east part near 98th and Eads Avenue. We could actually hear football games coming from uh, Raider Stadium. Summers Armstrong ended up in Las Vegas after a four-year stint in Germany with her ex-husband who was stationed there with the Air Force. When she moved back to Vegas, she met her current husband, Carl. I ended up meeting Carl Armstrong in 1993 when I was working the job of a lifetime as a judicial assistant for Adelia D. Guy III, who was the first Black district court judge in the state of Nevada. And week two of that job, he introduced me to Carl. And from that has been a 26-year marriage. After working for the district court, Summers Armstrong moved on to the Regional Transportation Commission. She will also be serving on the Assembly Growth and Infrastructure Committee. I went to the Regional Transportation Commission 
as an executive assistant there for the then director. And I've been there for 25 years. So my entire 25 year career there has been understanding how public works projects, how planning for our communities works. And I think that's really driven my interest in participating in the process because what I've seen is public works projects, streets and highways projects, that money makes communities better when it's spent in, an, in a thoughtful way, when it's, when it's planned out well. Even when Summers Armstrong was little, she had an interest in politics. Unfortunately, some adults in her life at the time discouraged her. My sixth grade self told my history teacher at Strobridge Middle School that I wanted to be the president of the United States. And he told me that I couldn't be because girls didn't become president and I was too conservative and religious. And my, my, my beliefs wouldn't allow me to be the president. And he was the second person to really kind of squash dreams of mine. Later than that, a home ec teacher told me when I told her, well, if I can't be president, I'd like to be a fashion designer. And she told me I couldn't be that because I didn't draw freehand well enough. And so it's amazing. I think we have to be really careful what we tell children because you know, it's crushing to them. But that's okay, because guess what? I may not be the president of the United States, and under the circumstances, I would not want that job. (laughs) But I can be a representative for my community. I can work hard for the people who I know and love in West Las Vegas and near North Las Vegas, which is what I represent. I can listen uh, to their concerns and try my best to advocate for what is good and best for my community. Summers Armstrong told us about some of the bills she'll be working on during the session, including one dealing with doulas who support women through the childbirth process and another dealing with evictions. One of the bills that I'm carrying is one for doulas. So this is really exciting. Brandon and Dexter, who are my two older sons, I were born in Germany and I had a midwife. And so we've been working with Assemblywoman Danielle Monroe Moreno to talk, make sure that we are understanding her Uh, legislation she's working on for midwives. And then we have an interest in doulas, which are the support persons for the moms. So that's a really interesting one. And I'm working with Assemblywoman Selena Torres on some summary eviction legislation, working with some other folks on some housing stuff, some redevelopment legislation. The 2021 session is going to look a lot different from other legislative sessions. We now have a rough understanding that at least to start, the building will be closed to the public and will have limited access for lobbyists and the media. While it will feel different than previous sessions, there is still an air of excitement from freshmen like Summers Armstrong. So we're all, it is pretty much like high school. First day of high school, you don't know where the bathroom is. You don't know where the counselor's office is. It's pretty much the same thing. So we're all trying to find our way. And it's fun. I mean, you know, it's life is funny like this. You know, it doesn't always come out like some grand Hollywood production. That's not real. This is real life. This is real life having to figure out how to build relationships through COVID. This is real life trying to figure out how to lead, how to how to serve in COVID, how to be safe. 
We'll now move on to our next freshman legislator, Venetia Considine, a Democrat from Assembly District 18 in eastern Las Vegas. The seat was recently held by Democrat Richard Carrillo, who left to run an unsuccessful race for state Senate. When I was a kid, my father was a firefighter in New York City. And when he retired, we couldn't afford to live on Long Island on his pension. So my parents' solution was to sell everything that we owned and eventually bought an RV. And we drove around the country. And I attended six different high schools in four different states and actually stayed at the KOA on Boulder Highway, which is no longer there, but stayed there and went to Chaparral High School for a short period of time and got my first real job in Las Vegas. Considine is an attorney with the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada, which offers free legal services to people who can't otherwise afford a lawyer. She gave some insight into what she saw during the Great Recession. So when I started uh, at the Legal Aid Center, I started in 2008, but I started as an attorney in 2009. And I started in the brand new foreclosure unit. And that was required because that was right when the Great Recession hit. And people were losing their houses and people were losing their jobs and everything was was crazy. And working with people to try to just keep them afloat will stick with me forever, especially comparing that to like living in campgrounds and RV parks. You know, it's kind of the same experiences in my life over and over. Now that we are in another economic crisis, Constantine told us what her priorities are this session, which include ensuring people have health insurance. I really think this session will be more about protecting, protecting access to healthcare, protecting education. I'd love to expand education. I'd love to, you know, expand access to healthcare and make it more um, affordable and accessible. But this session, it might just be about, you know, protecting as much, again, I, how many times have I said protecting, <laughs> but um, protecting as, as much as we can. So my, my big ideas, hopefully, if I'm lucky enough to be elected to a second term, I, I can focus on some bigger things then. This time, it's all about making sure people can get through the day in a place that's safe to live with a job and some food on the table. Constantine also said she feels great responsibility as she heads into the session during such an unprecedented time in Nevada. I'm excited because I, I feel like I'm learning so much more and I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, I can really, you know, make a difference. I could help. But it's incredibly daunting. You know, the idea that there are, you know, 63, you know, of us and it's basically on all of our shoulders to make the, you know, to make laws or change laws and make sure that we don't harm people. It's a very daunting responsibility. And, you know, when you're campaigning, you know, you're talking about yourself, you're talking about what, you know, what you want to do, you're making connections one-on-one with constituents. Now it all shifts. Now it's making um, connections and building relationships with people, you know, that agree with you and even people that don't agree with you, but, you know, finding ways to, to bring everything together because, you know, this session, we got to get stuff done. We've got to come together and we've got to put Nevadans first. And, you know, we, in my opinion, we really have to work together as a team. And this might be one of the more difficult times to do that. And I, and I hope it's not. She also shared a bit about her hobbies and interests outside of the legislature. I love to read. I have like a library with a database where I've, you know, actually Dewey decimaled all of my books. So I do like to read and, and I love movies. I'm an old movie buff. Like I love watching old movies and keeping, keeping up with, I have this list of movies that I've been going through for like the past 10 years, movies starting in like 1911, all the way up to today. 
So whenever I have some absolutely free time, I'll, I'll check my list and, and watch a movie that I might have never thought about watching before. But because it's on the list, I'll watch it. And I'm usually really surprised at how good it is. You have a favorite? Oh, it's really tough. All Quiet on the Western Front. I did not want to see that because I thought it was just going to be some old black and white war movie. And it was so good. And then recently I just watched Clute, which is from like 1973. And it was so much better than I would have thought. That wraps up the second iteration of Freshman Orientation. Tune in next week to meet two more new lawmakers. The interviews this week were originally done by reporter Tabitha Mueller and myself, and the segment was edited by me, Joey Lovato. If you want to find out who your representatives are in the state, you can find them at ledge.state.nv.us slash who's my legislator. And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada independent healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Megan, before we get into anything else, as we always do, uh, we're going to start with those numbers. So noting that we're recording at around 9.30 a.m. on Friday, January 22nd, uh, what does the data look like? Yeah, so looking at the case numbers right now, we're sitting at about 266,000 cases, almost 267,000 cases um, as of this morning when we're recording. Um, It's important to note, you know, we've been talking about, you know, over the course of the fall, how cases have have been increasing. You know, we saw a little little dip around the holiday associated with decrease in testing. But it looks like, um, you know, state officials are saying we're we're finally at the point this week that the the decreases that we're seeing, um, you know, is part of a, a more sustained trend, hopefully, um, but we should at least be past that holiday peak. So any cases that we would have seen associated with Christmas gatherings or, or New Year's Eve, New Year's Day gatherings, um, those should be behind us. And looking at you know the cases that are being reported right now from the counties, um, you know if you look at our graph, it looks like there's a pretty steep. Uh, decline, of course, um, you know, we've been under this uh, statewide pause, which was, you know, uh, a short pause. Now it's been a quite long pause. Um, We're still under those restrictions. So I know state officials are going to be looking at the data to see how those trends continue. Uh, I think part of the concern is that you know, we kind of have this sense of cases are going up. Okay. Everyone kind of decides to be a little bit more cautious, you know, whatever they were doing, maybe they scale back their behavior a little bit, but as we see cases start to improve, people start to feel a little bit better, the state loosens restrictions, and then, you know, people start engaging in more of these behaviors that, um, you know, can contribute to cases rising again. So I know they'll be keeping a close eye on those, um, it's also worth noting that when we had that, uh, you know, previous surge over the summer, of course, we've now since long surpassed that in terms of those case um, totals. We never reached that low point that we did, you know, before the summer surge. So that's something we're going to be keeping an eye on as well to see, okay, what is kind of our our, our low point and do cases start going back up again? Because um, the concern is that you kind of, you know, your your new low is still, still quite high. So we'll be keeping an eye on that as well. Um, we should talk a little bit about the number of deaths being reported in Nevada. So um, as of as of this morning, there have been 3,916 deaths 
reported across the state. You know, we, we've been talking about how those numbers have been increasing, which again is not wholly unexpected because, um, you know, again, we see this delay between the case numbers and death numbers. So we're still seeing those those high numbers of deaths right now, um, but that's not, you know, completely unexpected given what we've, we've seen from the case data. And we should talk a little bit about hospitalizations, which um, have seen a bit of a decrease from a high point, um, you know, earlier this winter. So uh, as of the last reported day, there are 1,642 uh, COVID-19 hospitalizations currently. Um, that is lower than sort of these, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, just crossing that 2,000 mark and then down in the 1900s, we'd, we'd been there for quite a bit of time. So, you know, it's certainly good news that we're seeing that, that a lot of that has been aided by some of the decreases that we saw in Northern Nevada, which, you know, was under significant stress because of COVID-19 this fall, but now keeping an eye on those Southern Nevada numbers as well as so we've seen, you know, decreases in case numbers in Clark County looking for that decreasing uh, number of hospitalizations as well. Mm. So a big story with coronavirus right now is the vaccine and the vaccination uh, process, both at the state level and the federal level. So in, in Nevada, uh, we're nearing sort of the end of the original tier one, those healthcare workers and frontline workers who are most exposed to COVID in the field. And now we're starting to get to other employment-based and age-based vaccination groups. Do we have a sense of how the state's vaccination plan is handling this shift from medical workers to people who are not medical workers? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, a lot of the difficulty, for instance, in Clark County, um, you know, Clark County, for instance, did a great job getting those um, hospital workers vaccinated. But what was a little bit more difficult for the county was finding, you know, the people in the radiology office offices and the small, um, you know, private medical practices, um, you know, setting up clinics for those folks. If you're at a big hospital, it's pretty easy to sort of set up one of these, um, you know, big vaccination operations, but the getting those um, smaller providers vaccinated was was a big task for, for Clark County. Um, interestingly, Clark County is now uh, just sort of looking at the, the big counties, a lot of rural counties have actually progressed quite far, but um, of, of the bigger counties, uh, Clark County is actually um, offering the vaccine to the, the I guess, largest group. <laughs> group of people right now, they decided to go ahead and open up um, vaccines this week to uh, the entire category of what's known as frontline community support. So at the top of that category are those pre-K, K through 12 childcare workers, followed by NSHE, uh, which a lot of counties are, are vaccinating those groups right now, but Clark County has actually gone a step further and they're vaccinating everyone in that tier. And that's a tier that includes um, at the bottom are, are mortuary services. It includes other um, community support organizations like people who work at food banks, for instance. It includes um, essential public transit, which includes taxis and rideshare services. So Clark County has actually opened up vaccinations to quite a large group of, of essential workers. Um, you know, while, while other counties, like I was saying, Washoe County, um, you know, still just sort of focusing on the narrowly on those education folks before expanding and opening it up to other categories within that, you know, broader category of the frontline community support group. Um, it's also worth noting that, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week, but we're now pretty much vaccinating uh, seniors 70 and up statewide. The big development on that this week, um, you know, counties are to some extent taking them at their uh, vaccination sites. Washoe County Health District, for instance, kind of has this random system where you sign up as a senior to be on their waiting list. And then, you know, they randomly select, uh, you know, as many seniors as they can take from that group, even though it's a pretty small segment of that group that signed up. Uh, but the big development this week was that pharmacies uh, across the state have started administering the vaccine to those 70 and up. So 
um, in in Clark and Washoe counties. That's going to be um, you know Smiths and Walgreens. Uh, different uh, folks are helping out in other parts of the state. Um, for instance, uh, you know I think Safeway in Mineral County. You know, so just sort of depending on where you are is going to be the pharmacy that's that's going to be providing the vaccine to you. But that will be um, you know significant boost to the state's vaccination efforts. Previously, those pharmacies were focused on long-term care facilities as they've wrapped up vaccinating those folks. They're now turning to that uh, senior population. But again you know, the big thing we're facing right now is the fact that we just have such a, a small supply of vaccine coming into the state of Nevada. There are, of course, you know, we talked about Clark County, some of those difficulties getting those vaccines out initially to healthcare workers. So of course, distribution on the state side, county side is going to be part of the problem. But once the state gets that worked out, once the counties get that worked out, the biggest limiting factor is going to be that allocation from the federal government, which as of late has only been about 38,000 doses a week. You think about that. Every person needs two doses. Nevada has more than 3 million people. You can quickly do the math and see how long it's going to take um, everyone or even you know 70% of everyone to get vaccinated if that's um, our continued allocation. So that's probably one of the biggest hurdles that, that Nevada is facing right now. Once we get that you know distribution system ironed out, these um, um, you know, mass vaccination sites stood up with the one at Cashman Center. There's supposed to be one coming at Las Vegas Convention Center in Southern Nevada. Once those set up, it's going to be um, really an issue of, of supply and getting, you know, getting supply from the federal government so that Nevada has the doses needed uh, to vaccinate these priority groups. Mm. And talking about numbers, I know early on there was uh, uh, some, dis- not discrepancies, but some questions about the way that Nevada was reporting vaccine data and how we are finding out how many people in the state are being vaccinated. Do we have a better sense now of that number? How many people, how many Nevadans are vaccinated right now? Yeah, so um, as of right now, it's hard because the, the state provides this information, but you know, generally maybe it's once or twice a week on their daily press calls. Right now they don't have a dashboard that updates every day. So we don't have daily numbers from the state at this point. So we've been having to rely on data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But CDC data um, shows as of yesterday, uh, there were 115,991 doses of the COVID-19 vaccine administered. So again, that's first and second doses. Uh, So as of right now, there are um, 19,296 people who've received their second dose. So they're fully vaccinated. And then another uh, 76,541 people have only received that first dose. So they're partially protected, but not fully protected uh, from the, from COVID-19. Um, and then it's worth noting that the CDC reports there are about um, 278,000 uh, doses that have been distributed to Nevada. Now state officials look at this number and they say, okay, this is not doses that are present in the state of Nevada. This is doses that have been allocated by the federal government to the state of Nevada. So these aren't doses that are necessarily just sitting in, in, in a freezer somewhere. They could be on trucks, you know, on, on the way to Nevada. Doesn't mean that we have them in our position. Um, but state officials too keep pointing to um, the fact that this this data entry um, is, is quite laborious. You know, they say it takes two minutes to enter every vaccination record into the state's uh, vaccine system. So they, they attribute that in part to some of these low numbers um, that we're seeing. But as we talked about, you know, there were um, initially at least some hurdles um, getting, you know, getting vaccines, especially in Southern Nevada, into people's arms. So we saw some of that lag as well. But as, as we play catch up and more and more of those doses are going to people's arms, um, the, the, the big issue is going to be just getting more vaccine supply into the state, which, you know, isn't isn't up to the state of Nevada, unfortunately. Well, we'll have to watch how that vaccine program develops over the next weeks and months. But as always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan and her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, Venetia Considine, Chandra Summers Armstrong, and Megan Messerly for being on the podcast this week. If you like listening to the show, consider leaving a rating and review wherever you listen. It really does help the show grow and reach more people. If you want to tell us what a great job we're doing, or if you have suggestions, you can either email us at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com, or tweet at us or send us a letter in the mail. We unfortunately no longer accept faxes or carrier pigeon. Local Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp. We had additional music this week from Lance Conrad, Storyblocks, and original music from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>